you guys have a good day at camp? Yeah. We had a good day. We had a good day. It was so fun to see you guys sledding down the tube run and snowboarding. And how many of you had a milkshake today? Raise your hand if you had a milkshake today. That's what I'm talking about. No milk chocolate, right? No milk chocolate? Just kidding. I'm just kidding, y'all. Hey, um, we've been on a little bit of a journey this weekend. We, we started last night talking about how God is the author of life. That God is who makes life meaningful. God is the meaning of life. This morning, we unpacked in depth how sin makes life meaningless. That sin will promise you life, but it only makes it meaningless. And the reality is every single one of us are stuck in our sin. And the reality is there's nothing we can do on our own to get ourselves out of it. Tonight, the title of my message is The Gospel Redeems a Meaningless Life. And I want to encourage you, I know you've been bringing your booklets and your journals and your Bibles. Uh, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes and to get out your journals. Tonight we're talking about how the gospel redeems a meaningless life. But before we look at Ecclesiastes, I want to tell you, um, for the first like eight years of my marriage with Sarah, so Sarah and I have been married about uh, almost 15 years, and for the first eight years or so, there was like one glaring issue that that we would always talk about that, that she would bring up to me. It was the, kind of the one, the, one of the big issues in our marriage is she said, Eric, you have a snoring problem. Like, like it's bad. And I, I would tell her, I would, I would push back a little bit. I would say, Sarah, I'm a man. Men snore. Like, that's just what we do. And she's like, no, 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 Eric, there's like snoring. And then there's the sound that a grizzly bear would make if he was dying. And that's what you sound like. And so she kept telling me, I want you to go, you know, go to a sleep center, get tested. Like, I'm worried, like, you're going to die. Like, I, it's, it sounds terrifying. And so finally, I, I scheduled one of these appointments. And it's kind of the, like the weirdest experience ever. You arrive at the doctor's office, like, at nighttime. Nobody else is there. And, and I walk through the, uh, into the kind of the, the entryway, and the, the person at the desk kind of takes my information and then walks me down this hallway where there are all these separate rooms and, and you walk inside of this room and, and, I, and I sit down on this bed and, and the guy who's the technician, he's like kind of talking to me and we're getting to know each other a little bit. And I, I remember when I sat into this, when, when I kind of like sat on the edge of the bed, I was kind of surveying and it's kind of like a hotel room slash like hospital room, like kind of got interesting vibes. And, and there's a bathroom and I noticed that the door was open. I remember thinking to myself, okay, I got to make sure I go to the bathroom before I go to bed. And, and I was kind of, you know, feeling weird about this. Like somebody's going to be watching me sleep the whole night. Like that's what they do is they just watch you sleep. Like that's like creepy. And I was like, this, these people get paid a lot of money to watch me sleep. It's just weird. And what if I do something weird? I don't know. It's just kind of like weird. And, and, and so anyways, the technician and I, we were just talking and kind of getting to know each other. And before I knew it, I mean, he was hooking me up to all these machines and, and he got towards the end of it. And I realized, oh, like, I'm not going to the bathroom. Like, there's just no time for that. And so I'm, you know, freaking out trying to figure out how am I going to go to sleep. And, and, uh, the technician, he, he, he asked me what I did. I told him I was a pastor. He said, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to this church. We're kind of having this conversation. And then he, uh, he turned off the TV and, and then he looked at me and he said, hey, um, uh, Eric, do, 
do you believe in ghosts? And I, I just gotta tell you guys, the scariest thing we watch in our house is Coco Melon. That's as scary as it gets for us. <laughs> uh, that's it. I, I won't go anything scarier than that. And so I start kind of getting a little scared and freaked out by the question. And I, I quickly answered back. I said, no, I don't believe in ghosts. In fact, I think it's one of the ways that Satan messes with us, tries to distract us spiritually, keep us away from putting our faith in Christ by piquing our interest through ghosts or whatever. And, and, and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, I don't believe in ghosts. And then he said this, he said, um, but the guy who slept in this bed last night he said that he woke up in the middle of the night and, and somebody was tickling his feet. <laughs> and you guys, I, I start to freak out, right? And I'm like, are you serious? And then he, he literally did this. He said, well, good night, turns off the light and shut the door. And I'm in a pitch black room by myself. And the first thought that comes to my mind is, Dude, creepy foot tickle dude is in the bathroom waiting for me to go to sleep. Now, I, I later found out like he was just messing with me, right? Like he's just kind of messing with me. But, but I remember in that moment, like I could barely reach my phone and I texted Sarah. I said, it might be the last text you get from me. I love you, right? It kind of got me thinking like, what can we know for sure? We go through experiences in our lives. We have conversations with people. Things happen. And we ask the question, well, what can we really know for sure? In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, we read this verse this morning. It says, indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. And I think all of us here, whether you believe in God or not, you, you believe that, you trust that. If we're honest with ourselves today, all of us messed up. This is absolutely right. We can know that to be sure. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter three, just a few chapters earlier, it says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, says the reason that every one of us in this room wonders what's the purpose of life? Is there meaning? Unlike any other species on planet Earth is because you were made in God's image and God set eternity in your heart, meaning you can't help but ask some really big eternal questions. You see, why aren't you and I just satisfied why is it that you and I wonder what happens after we die? The Bible says it's because God has put eternity in the human heart. You see, this is clear from Ecclesiastes. Things are not okay. The problem in the world today is sin. That's what every single problem within our own heart, within the entire world, it all comes down to sin. It all comes back to sin, and sin is, is rebellion. It's, it's missing the mark. It's dethroning God and putting ourselves in his place. It's making us the center of the universe. It's every thought, word, or action that we've ever done that is disobedient and goes against God's word. And we said it this morning that sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you were ever willing to pay. And Ecclesiastes basically screams this idea that you were made for God. 
the meaning of life is God. So how does God respond to our sin? I mean, every one of us know we've got sin, we've got stuff in us. We know the world and we know ourselves are broken. The question is, how does this perfect, holy, pre-existent, awesome, perfect, almighty God respond to you and your sin? Respond to me and my sin? I would suggest to you tonight that Jesus Christ is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And I don't know what your view of Jesus is as you walked into this room, but he is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. What I mean by that is you can't just say, well, Jesus had some interesting things to say, or he had some wise things to say, or he healed a few people. He was pretty cool. No, no, no. Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or Lord. What do I mean by that? Jesus declared on multiple occasions that he is God. Jesus said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said before Abraham, which is like one of the godfathers of the Old Testament, he said before Abraham, I am. And it says the religious leaders, they picked up stones to throw at him because he was blaspheming in their eyes. In other words, he was claiming to be equal with God. So you see, Jesus can't just be an interesting teacher. He, he was either a liar. In, in other words, he knew that he wasn't God, but he was trying to convince people. He was trying to scam us. Or Jesus was a lunatic, that he, he was out of his mind, that, that he actually believed he was God, but he, he really wasn't. Or he's Lord. He's God. M meaning everything he said, he actually was and that changes everything about our lives. The question I want to invite you to consider tonight is, which was he? And what does that mean for you? In Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 to 19, it says, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the 12 aside, and he said to them, Jesus knows that the end is coming. And he wants to prepare his disciples for what they are about to experience. And I actually believe he wants his disciples to have confidence in who Jesus is so he gives them the game plan before it ever happens. In other words, it's like Jesus is saying, hey guys, here's what's going to happen so that when it does happen, you'll believe in me, you'll, you'll trust me you'll know that even though I'm asking you to give your whole life to me, it'll be worth it because you can trust me. Jesus said, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, he's talking about himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. So Jesus says, friends, here's what's going to happen. I will be mocked. I will be flogged, I will be crucified, and then on the third day, I will literally come back from the dead. 
And if those four things don't happen, Jesus is a liar or he's a lunatic. If those four things happen, Jesus is the Lord of the universe. So here's what happened. At this point in Jesus' life, he's got two enemies. He's got the religious leaders on one side who aren't cool with Jesus because Jesus is claiming to be God. It's taking away their power, and so they're not a fan of Jesus. And, and then he's got the, the government of his day who's not a fan of Jesus because the doctrine of the Romans was that Caesar is God, and yet here's Jesus claiming to be God. So on that Thursday night, Jesus gathers and has a meal with his disciples, and then he takes three of them, his closest friends. He, he takes them to the garden of Gethsemane, and he, he says, guys, I want you to pray with me. He goes a little farther by himself and the gospel of Luke, which is one of the four historical accounts of the life of Jesus, it was written by Luke, the doctor, a, a historian and a physician, a medical practitioner of his day. And, and Luke's historical account of Jesus, his gospel tells us that while Jesus was in this garden, he was crying out and he was saying, Father, if there's any other way, Take this cup from me, but not my will be done, your will be done. In other words, Jesus is crying out, saying, if there's any other way to save humanity besides me having to die on a cross, let's go with that option. But not my will be done, your will be done. The Gospel of Luke says that, that Jesus was in such anguish, he was so overwhelmed at the realization of what was coming and as he was beginning to anticipate the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders, that he is literally sweating drops of blood. That Jesus was in so much anguish at this moment that drops of blood are protruding from his forehead as he's praying, as he's processing all that's about to happen. Well, the religious leaders and the government come together and they arrest Jesus that night. And his 12 closest friends, his disciples, all of them deserted Jesus. And he was alone. Jesus then is mocked. He's blindfolded and, and they spit at him and they say, if you're a prophet, why don't you tell us who spit on you? Or they, they hit him over the head and they say, if you're a prophet, why don't you tell us who struck you? And they're they are making a mockery of Jesus. Just like he said they would. The next morning, after I imagine not a lot of sleep, he's woken up early and he's brought before Pontius Pilate, who was the, the Roman governor of that part of Israel. And and he's brought before him, and Pontius Pilate is trying to figure out what to do with Jesus, and, and the crowd behind him just chants, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate says, okay, but before you crucify him, flog him. In these ancient first century documents that we have recorded for us, it, it merely says that Jesus was flogged because in its original context, that first audience would have known exactly what that meant. 
But for many of us, we're so removed from it. It meant that Jesus was stripped completely naked and he was tied to a pole as his back was exposed and as a crowd gathered around them. You see, this was their form of entertainment. And two Roman guards on either side of Jesus had whips in their hands with nails and rocks and glass at the end of them. And one after the other, 39 times, they strike Jesus's back. It's causing Jesus' body to literally come undone. I mean, just think about this. The God of the universe, Jesus Christ, who knits us together in our mother's womb, is literally being undone by the people he has created. As the crowds cheer. It took two Roman guards because the task was so tiresome that not one person could do it easily, and so they finish, and I imagine Jesus' body just collapsed to the ground as he's in shock. Jesus was mocked, and Jesus was flogged, just like he said would happen. That's not the end of the story. Jesus is then forced to put a giant wooden beam over his shoulders and walk up a hill one of the gospels says that on his way up the hill, he, he collapsed, he couldn't carry it any longer and a man from the crowd was forced to carry it the rest of the way. They get to the top of this hill and, and they laid Jesus down and laid his, his arms out against the wooden beam and they felt for the depression in his wrist and they drove one nail through one piece of the wood. They stretched out his other hand, drove a nail through that piece of wood. Then they hoisted him up and they put one foot over the other and drove a nail right through both feet into the piece of wood and Jesus has just begun his crucifixion. And you see, in the first century context, the Romans had perfected crucifixion. It, it, it was an incredibly painful way to die. You didn't die from crucifixion because of blood loss. You died because of suffocation. You couldn't breathe. Because for six hours, the gospel of Mark, the other historical account of the life of Jesus is that for six hours, Jesus is lifting himself up to take a breath, causing excruciating pain on his feet. And then he exhales, causing excruciating pain on his wrists. And for six hours, Jesus is just trying to catch his breath. And yet he'll utter words like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I intentionally use the word excruciating because our English word excruciating comes from the Latin word excruciare, which literally means out of crucifixion. The very picture that comes into the mind of somebody who uses the word excruciating is what Jesus endured on the cross. And after those six hours, Jesus finally cries out, it is finished. And he dies. Just like he said he would. It, it is finished that sin will have the final word in our lives. It is finished that Satan 
will be victorious over our stories. It, it is finished, the chasm that divides us and God. It is finished, the payment that we could never make has been paid for us by Jesus Christ. It is finished. Salvation is available to everyone. And Jesus dies just like he said he would. Now, maybe some of you up to this point, you're going, okay, Eric, that's a crazy, horrible story, but I don't understand what Jesus dying on the cross has to do with my life. That was like 2,000 years ago. I don't, I'm not connecting the dots. What does that have to do with my life? To help me illustrate this, I need my friend Hunter. Where's my friend Hunter? Hunter, can you come up here? Guys, can you guys give Hunter a round of applause? Now, Hunter, come on up here real quick. Come on up here. Okay. Have you ever been arrested at church camp? There's a first time for everything. Here we go, brother. All right. Let me see your hand real quick. All right. Come on over here. There we go. Okay. So it's a great question. What does the death of Jesus have to do with our lives? Well, the Bible says that sin is a death sentence, that, that we are enslaved to our sin. And a lot of us, when we, think of our, when we think of sin or things that we've done that, that disobey or dishonor God, we kind of think of them as, man, that's the thing that I did in my past. Nobody found out about it. Nobody posted about it. Nobody let my parents know about it. It's in my past and I can just move forward. But because the Bible is God's perfect message to us, he's so honest with us. And he said, actually, the reality is, is you are enslaved to your sin. And so when you think about your sin, I, I want you to think about this baggage, this, this luggage that, that we're enslaved to that, that we can't do anything about on our own. But we try, right? The first thing we try to do is we try to hide our sin from those around us. So here's what I want you to do, Hunter. Stay in right here. I want you, if this represents your sin, I want you to try to hide your sin from everyone here. All right, go ahead. Dude, you're, I, I know you're a gifted guy. I just, I know you're talented. But how many of you can still see Hunter's sin? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay. Okay, now, if we don't find it successful to hide our sin, we, we try to run from our sin. We join a new youth group. We start a new social media account. We try to run as far away from our sin as possible. And so here's what I want you to do, Hunter. Just with this little space right here, I want you to try to run from your sin. Ready, set, go. Yeah, let's go. Try it again, Hunter. Dude, you're ready for the Olympics, bro. Let's go. Run from your sin, Hunter. Okay, all right, all right. Come here, come here, Hunter, come here. You're awesome, dude. Awesome, awesome. But here's the thing. You all saw what I saw. Wherever Hunter went, his sin went also. What does the death of Jesus have to do with your life and my life? On our own, we are enslaved to our sin. On our own, our sin separates us forever from God. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, what he did is he, having lived a perfect life, being the only qualified one, became the perfect substitution, the perfect sacrifice. And in the greatest act of love and grace, 
that we could ever possibly imagine. Jesus said, because I love you so much, I will take your sin so you could be free, so you could be forgiven. And so what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross has everything to do with you and me because 2,000 years ago, Jesus paid the penalty. He, he took our sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be free, so that you could fully experience his love and so you could spend all of eternity with him because he loves you that much. Could you guys give Hunter a round of applause? Thank you, Hunter. You see, think about it this way. God prioritized your life over his own. God held nothing back to win you back. God did for you what no boyfriend or girlfriend could ever do for you. God did for you what no GPA could ever do for you. God did for you what no future salary could ever do for you. God did for you what no future athletic career could ever do for you. Jesus Christ paid the penalty in full so that you could be free and forgiven. That's the, that's the gospel good news. But friends, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, he didn't die for your sins. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, he's a liar or he's a lunatic. And in fact, maybe up to this point, it's easy for you to imagine Jesus being mocked and flogged and crucified because lots of people were mocked, flogged, and crucified. But, but then there's this idea that Jesus rose from the dead, that he literally came back from the dead. And it's a pretty wild and out idea. But if it happened, it changes everything. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, the apostle Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. In verse 17, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then there is still an issue. There is still a problem. There is still a chasm between us and God and there is no hope for us. But in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul lays out at least four reasons. I'm going to share with you two of them now. But at least four reasons why you and I can be confident that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Because our faith hinges on this. One of the first examples that Paul gives, one of the, in fact, if you want to write this down, here's two reasons that we believe Jesus rose from the dead. Here's two reasons we believe Jesus rose from the dead. Paul says that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. And why is that significant? It's significant because when Jesus Christ died, none of his disciples were willing to die with him. I mean, they loved him. They appreciated him. He had made a big impact on their lives, but they were not willing to die alongside Jesus, and they were not willing to give up their lives for Jesus. But then on that Resurrection Sunday, that first Easter, these disciples who were afraid, 
who weren't willing to die with Jesus on Friday, all of a sudden saw him Sunday morning back from the dead and it changed everything. And, and the reason that I, I believe that is because history tells us, and you can research this, history tells us that each one of those disciples, they went off out into the world telling everybody, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus Christ is God Almighty. You can be forgiven of your sins through Jesus Christ alone. And not only did they carry that message all out into the world, but they were beaten, they were persecuted, they were tortured, and they were murdered for that. One of them was boiled in oil. One of them was beheaded. One of them was, was crucified upside down. One of them was, oh, it's so painful to imagine. One of them was, was their skin was taken off. I mean, they endured such horrific, painful deaths, not because they had walked with Jesus at one point, not because they were friends with Jesus. They died horribly brutal, painful deaths because they couldn't stop and they wouldn't stop telling the world, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and he is God Almighty. What? If you're an intellectual, if you like to think about these things, just ask yourself, what could possibly explain a group of people on Friday unwilling to die with Jesus on Sunday, not only willing to give up their lives, but they did for him? The only logical explanation is that they actually saw Jesus back from the dead. But Paul isn't done yet. Another example, he says that Jesus appeared to James. Now, the James that he's referring to is the brother of Jesus. And what's interesting is if you look at the Gospels, the, the siblings of Jesus, they weren't totally sure about him. They were a little skeptical. But then in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, after Jesus had risen from the dead, it says that the brothers of Jesus were praying with the other disciples. They went from being skeptical that their brother was God to praying to their brother. And, and James, he, he became the leader of the church, the Christian church in Jerusalem. And, and during a transition of political power, he was thrown off a building and he fell to the ground and, and a mob surrounded him and they beat him until he died. And they didn't beat him to death because he was the brother of Jesus. They beat him to death because he couldn't stop and he wouldn't stop telling the world, my brother is my savior. My brother rose from the dead. Raise your hand if you have a sibling. Raise your hand if you have a sibling. What would it take for you to believe they were God? What would it take? You know what it would take? It would take a resurrection. And that's exactly what happened. Now, I think tonight every single one of us has a next step to take. In light of what Jesus Christ did for all of humanity, for all of us, in light of the evidence that he actually rose from the dead, it, it's, it's clear to me that he is Lord. But I think every one of us has a next step 
to take. In John 3.16, it says, For God so... For God so... For God so... Now, some of you, some of you, you came to camp and you were convinced that God hated you. You were convinced that God's indifferent towards you. You were convinced that God wanted nothing to do with you. You were convinced that God hasn't thought about you, that God thinks you're a waste of space. Maybe other people in your life have made you feel like that, but the Bible, God's perfect message, says that actually God loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, has faith in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. All of us are gonna spend eternity somewhere. Jesus Christ died absorbing all of your sin so that you could be forgiven and experience the life to the full that he has for you now and for all of eternity. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This verse blows my mind. I don't fully understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. It's like, it's like this, this crazy idea that if, that if I will bring the worst of myself to Jesus, he will give the best of himself to me. This doesn't work in any other relationship, but with God Almighty, if we will come to him and confess our sins and say, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of salvation and forgiveness and grace, the Bible says that Jesus is faithful. Do you know what that means? That means he can be trusted. That means he's not gonna walk out on you. That means he's not gonna look at your sin and go, oh, that's too messy for me. No, he is absolutely committed to you. The Bible says that, that he is just. Do you know what that means? That means his perfect sacrifice on the cross paid the penalty in full. You could never earn his love and grace, and yet we try so hard. And then it says that he will forgive us. Do you know what that means? Jesus is not interested in constantly hanging your sin over your head and making you feel guilty. Jesus is not interested in making you feel guilty. He wants you to experience his grace. And then lastly, the Bible promises us that Jesus will purify us. You know what that means? He is invested in you for the long haul. He will not give up on you and he will transform you day by day more into the image of himself, that he will fill you with more and more peace and joy and contentment and life to the full. How do we get there? We confess. We confess. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the apostle Paul said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There was a young man in our high school ministry a couple years ago. His name is Malik. I think we have a picture of him. That was him sharing in front of our high school ministry. And 
What you need to know about Malik is that by the time Malik was 17 years old, he had lived in 15 different foster homes and three different group homes. And one day his social worker gave him a call as he was in one of these group homes and his social worker said, I, I have a family that's interested in fostering you. And the social worker said, this is a good family. They're Christians, they love Jesus. His family happens to go to our church. And so the social worker picks up Malik and they drive over to this family's house and the social worker parks the car and gets out to greet the family and Malik just sits in that car. He told me he sat there for about 20 minutes processing what was this new home gonna be like? Would it be safe? Would it be unsafe? Would it be similar to what I've experienced or different? I can't imagine all the processes, all the questions that were running through his mind, but he's thinking these things. And, and at that same time, the foster mom said that she sensed the Holy Spirit telling her to say something to Malik, to say three specific words to Malik. So Malik got out of the car and he, he walked up to his new foster mom and they made eye contact and his foster mom just said this, these three words, welcome home son. Malik later told me that those three words changed the trajectory of his life. Because for the first 17 years of his life, no one had ever called him son before. But at this moment, when this woman called him son, he felt something he had never felt before. That family has since adopted him. I tell you that story because that's really what tonight is about. That for some of you, you felt like a spiritual orphan. You felt like you're just kind of walking around trying to make meaning out of your life, and yet it continues to be more and more meaningless. You feel alone, you feel isolated. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the story that all of Scripture points to is that there is a God who created you and who has chosen to redeem you, to buy you back from sin and Satan and self, to forgive you and to free you because he wants to say to you, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. Welcome home. You see, the story of the Bible is one of God choosing to love us and the invitation of the Bible is to choose him in return. I want to invite everyone right now to close their eyes. And with your eyes closed, I want you to just think for a minute, what is your relationship status with God right now? Who is God really in your life? What, what have you chosen to put your faith in? Is it a boy or a girl or a future or somebody, a promise they made to you or a future salary or, or could it be that tonight 
God is inviting you to put your full faith and trust in him because he loves you. There's four groups that I want to talk to tonight, and I think all of us fit into one of these groups. The first group I want to talk to tonight is with every eye closed. There's some of you here tonight who you have never received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You've You've never confessed with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That you're not saved as of this moment. That you have not chosen to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. And and maybe you've gone to church before. Maybe you've been to these kind of things before. Or maybe all of this is brand new. You, You came up to camp not even believing there was a God. But right now you have become convinced that there is a God, he loves you, and his name is Jesus Christ. And you're done living a meaningless life. You're done trying to earn people's love, and you are ready to receive the love of God, the forgiveness of Christ, and you want to become a follower of Jesus. Not just for camp, but for the rest of your life. You want to spend all of eternity with Jesus. With every eye closed, you need to know that God brought you here this weekend for this moment to make a decision that will change the rest of your life because you're putting your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. If, if that's you tonight, if you've never received Christ before and you want his forgiveness for all of your sins and you want to follow him and, and live in eternity in heaven with him forever, I want to invite you right now to raise your hand. And with your hand raised, you're saying, Jesus, I want you for the first time. I'm putting my faith in you. God, I thank you for these students that are saying, Jesus, I want you. I choose you for the first time. I I receive your forgiveness and your love. God, I pray that right now in this moment, they would be overwhelmed with the goodness of your grace and your love for them. That they would know every single sin has been forgiven, the past, present, and future, that Jesus Christ, you paid it all. With your eyes closed, there's another group here tonight. There's some of you who... At one point, you were following Jesus, but the last few months, the last few years... The reality is your life has not reflected Jesus as your Lord. And you're ready to repent. You're ready to recommit. You're ready to to hand your life back over to God, making him the, the true Lord of your life. You're ready to just let go of those things that have been holding you back. At one point, you knew the gospel. You were following Jesus, but you haven't been recently. But you know that tonight, is that moment when you turn back to God. If that's you, I want to invite you right now to raise your hand. Jesus, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are making decisions to return to you. Thank you that you don't hold grudges, but you hand out grace. Thank you that you're not interested in holding their past against them, but that you've got a purpose and a plan for their future, that you've been waiting for this moment that they would make this decision. Would they be overwhelmed by your grace? With your eyes closed, there's, there's another group here tonight. And you still have questions. 
Maybe something really hard has happened in your life, or maybe it's some intellectual, historical, scientific questions that make it difficult for you to trust the Bible or to believe in Jesus because of something you've experienced or something you've watched or, or you've learned, and, and yet you are willing to stop making excuses and ignoring that that eternity that seems to have been set in your heart that can't get away from those questions. And, and so you are willing to make a decision that you are gonna get some answers for your questions because your great questions deserve great answers. And instead of allowing your questions to become justification for you to just keep sinning or doing whatever it is that you wanna do, you're ready beginning tonight. And as you go down the mountain to to say, Jesus, if you're real, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to explore. I, I'm, I'm willing to ask my youth pastor or leaders these questions. I'm willing to try to get some answers about Jesus and the Bible and the questions that I have. If that's you tonight and you're interested in saying, I, I will take a next step and try to get some answers to these questions, would you raise your hand right now as a way of just saying, God, I'm, I'm willing to pursue some answers. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these students, for their willingness to say, Jesus, I'm not even totally sure about you, but I am willing to get some answers. Because the church is the safest place. It's the best place to ask questions. And lastly, with every eye closed, there's some of you here tonight who all week, maybe all month, maybe all year, God has been putting a calling on your heart and you can't seem to get away from it and it terrifies you. Some of you sense that God is calling you to be a missionary, to be a pastor, to, to start a business that would advance the kingdom of God, to use your YouTube channel to share the good news of Jesus with people, to, to use your athleticism or your skills or your intellect to point people to Jesus. Maybe, maybe God has been calling you to share Jesus Christ with one of your parents who doesn't believe in God. Maybe he's called you to, to share Jesus with your drama club or with your soccer team. Or, or, or maybe he's calling you to start something, a Bible club that, that terrifies you. The idea of stepping out that you would become known on your campus or in your community or your neighborhood or in your family as one of those people who loves Jesus so much that they can't stop talking about him and it terrifies you and it's like you've sensed God has been knocking at the door of your heart saying I want you to trust me I want you to do this thing I want you to start this thing I want you to try this and I know it scares you but you can put your faith in me and, and you've been ignoring it but you're recognizing right now that God brought you here this weekend so that you could have a moment with him where you make a decision that you won't go back on to say yes to whatever it is that God is calling you to do for his glory. If that's you right now with every eye closed, if you sense God has put a calling, a burden on your heart and you're committing to saying yes and not turning your back on it, would you raise your hand right now? Wow. God, I think about the the communities, the families, the cities, 
the schools, the families that are gonna be turned upside down because of these students who have their hands up, who are willing to say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. Yes, Jesus, I will do what you have called me to do, even though it scares me because I think they are sensing in this moment that they will not be able to do it outside of you. But when they do it in your power, in your strength, their faith will increase and they will see you do immeasurably more than all they could ask or imagine. And so God, with this moment, for these people with their hands up, be a moment they don't turn back from where they say, I will say yes, Jesus. I wanna invite you to open your eyes right now and before we transition into a time of singing and musical worship, uh, we gotta celebrate. God did some amazing things in this place. And, And I want you to know that whatever your next step was, you don't have to take it by yourself, that you've got a community and so we're gonna celebrate. The Bible says that all of heaven is celebrating. And we want to join with them. So for each of those groups, I'm going to invite you to stand up. And I'm going to invite you to stand up because I want you to courageously, hold on, you can stay seated. I'll call you up in a minute. But I want you to stand up as a way of saying, this is what I have decided. And the rest of us are going to cheer and celebrate. And we're going to thank God for what his spirit has done in this place tonight. And so if you were in that first group that said, Jesus Christ I receive you for the first time. I am putting my faith in you for the first time. I wanna invite you on the count of three to stand up so we can celebrate that you went from death to life, the greatest miracle that could ever be seen. On the count of three, one, two, three. Woo! Yes! Stay standing, stay standing, stay standing. Stay standing. Now, while you're standing, while you're standing, while you're standing, I just have two questions for you, and I need you to respond out loud. Number one, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Yes. And number two, are you committed to following Jesus Christ for the rest of your life, wherever he leads you? Yes. Then welcome home. Now, if you were a part of that second group that said, Jesus, I'm coming home. I'm returning to you. Sometimes it can be scary to stand up. Are people going to judge you? No, we're the church. We want to encourage you. We want to hold you accountable. We want to support you. We're not going to hold your past against you. We're going to help you move forward. And so if you were in that second group, as a way of testifying to the new thing that God is doing in you, would you stand on the count of three? One, two, three. I just want to remind you, if you're standing, I just want to remind you, Satan's going to want to make you feel really guilty. And just remember, God wants you to know his grace and his love over you. You don't have to go back to those old ways. And we as your church, your community, we're going to help you with that. You can have a seat. The third group, there were some of you who raised your hand who said, I'm not totally ready Maybe to say yes to Jesus. I've still got these questions, but I'm willing to pursue some answers. And I want you to know it is incredibly courageous at a church camp to be the person raising your hand, to be the people raising your hand 
And I want you to know that the church is the safest place to doubt, to ask questions, to not be totally sure. We're gonna walk alongside you because we love you. And so if you made that decision, if you took that next step to say, I'm willing to get some answers for my questions, would you stand on the count of three? One, two, three. Awesome. 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 And while you're standing, while you're standing, I just want to say this. Your great questions deserve great answers. And I am confident that if you seek God, you will find him. And the last group, you guys can have a seat. The last group were those of you who said, Jesus, I'm going to stop running from the thing that you're calling me to do. I'm ready to say yes to that. And by you standing here in a moment is a way of you declaring before God and your community that you will follow through on the thing, whatever it is, you know what God has called you to do for his glory. If you're ready to take that step of faith to say yes, I want you to stand up on the count of three. For those of you that raised your hand and said, I'm going to say yes to the thing God's calling me to do. One, two, three. While you're standing, while you're standing, Satan is going to want to give you a million reasons between now and the time you get home from camp for why you couldn't do this, for why you're not qualified for it, for why you're not capable of it. And you know what you should, you know, you should respond to? You should say, you're right. I'm not qualified. I'm not capable. I can't do this in my own strength, but I got the power of the living God living inside of me. And he will do it through me. So you, you are an ambassador for Christ. And you have been uniquely positioned to do what no other person could do and what you couldn't do on your own. But by his strength and power, he will accomplish it through you. You can have a seat. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time tonight. Thank you for the ways your spirit has moved. God, I pray that each one of us would trust you, that we'd follow through on whatever decision we made tonight, that it wouldn't just be kind of a camp moment, but it would be a life-changing moment, a moment that we look back on for years and years to come as evidence of your great work in our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.